back to I Love This Movie. Um, you're here with Matt, and I'm joined by Adam and Corey. Um, and we're going to jump right into it. Um, today, we're going to be talking and reviewing the 1980 horror thriller classic, The Shining, directed by Stanley Kubrick. And it was based off a Stephen King novel um, with Kubrick writing the screenplay, starring Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, and Danny Lloyd. And uh, the story, if for you so you haven't seen it, Jack Torrance becomes the winter caretaker at the isolated Overlook Hotel in Colorado, hoping to cure his writer's block. He settles in along with his wife, Wendy, and his son, Danny, who are plagued by the psychic premonitions. As Jack's writings go nowhere, and Danny's visions become more disturbing than ever, Jack discovers the hotel's dark secrets and begins to unravel into a homicidal maniac hellbent on terrorizing his family. Um, so I'm going to open it right up. There's a lot to discuss, um, you know, for anybody that has read about it, has seen it, even if you've seen it one time, if you've seen it 30 times, there's always something new that catches your eye. There have been documentaries about it and conspiracy theories um, and uh, just overall a very chilling, chilling movie. Um, so uh, I'll open it up. Adam, what were your thoughts um, on The Shining. This is my uh, pick for the week. And the older I get, the more I love this movie. Um, this is definitely in my top two favorites of all time. Um, first is Raiders of Lost Ark. As you're watching, right behind me is the poster. Um, but The Shining is definitely my second favorite movie of all time. And just because it's so layered, there's so much detail that Stanley Kubrick intentionally puts into his movies. And I think The Shining is probably the best example of him intentionally putting little moments of that you might miss at the first viewing but after you watch it three four five times you see it over again so it's funny that you say those intentional moments right that everything has a meaning so um one of the things that Corey and i were actually talking about um earlier was one of the scenes um where wendy um, Shelley Duvall's character is she has the the knife um, and she's, um, you know, in a manic state and she goes up the staircase and she starts seeing like different ghosts and spirits um, that are, you know, uh, coming to, to life. And whenever she turns to her right at the top of the staircase, she sees a businessman on on a bed sitting down and then um, a a, a <laughs> person in a bulldog slash oh, a, bear costume it's a, it, it's a bear suit it's the but famous it looks like, yeah it looks like yeah. it's got like a bulldog mouth and yeah. and then there's just that creepy stare mm -hmm. and then right after that she sees the next person um that has you know blood spilling from the, his head and um he discusses and talks about the uh, the party um I, I can't figure out what the meaning behind the bear costume is. I have that, no idea. I, and it's so creepy. It weirds me out every single time. I did have a question for you, Adam. I still have seen this movie a bunch. The guy that's on the bed, I don't know if it's just because he just looks like another old white guy to me, but is that the former caretaker? No, no. The um, Those two characters... Now, it's been a long time since I read the book. Because he looked like him from a distance, and I was like, I don't yeah. know if that's him or not. I can't tell. No, it's but not. It's not. It's not supposed to be anybody that we're, we're supposed to know about. Um, and that I think in all of movie history, that's the biggest WTF moment. Okay. And that's the one that, that just 
takes people by off guard. And that's when they, you know, if they've never seen the movie before, when they see that moment, they're just like, what just happened? I, what was going on? Um, I mean, it, it definitely jars you. It, it was intentionally added to kind of take you off okay. guard. Now, if I can't, I can't, I'm trying to remember if, if there's actually a scene in the book that describes who they are. I think there is. I think there is. But uh, like I said, it's been a while since I read it. I, I mean, if you compare it to nowadays, I mean, you've got, you know, these furry conventions where people dress up in these animal suits. I mean, this may, in fact, be the first ever um, adaptation of a furry in a motion feature film. Um, I just, it just weirded me out to know every time, every time. And to your point, if they were doing it to jar the system, it works every time. Yeah. And I've seen it like a hundred times. And that's why this movie works so well, because it's a psychological haunt. There is only one jump scare in the entire movie, one jump scare. And, but you know, it's coming, you know, it's coming, but every time I just like start to cringe, okay, here it comes, here it comes. Where's it at? It's the scene where, um, Dick Halloran is walking, saying, hello, is anybody there? And you know Jack's behind one of the columns. You don't know which one. And then pops out, and he just blasts him right in the chest. Um, you know, if this movie was made today by some hotshot director, I mean, there'd be a jump scare every every other frame. Like yeah. Yeah, but Kubrick is intentional. He's slow with it. It's a slow story, but the story never drags. It, it always takes you to the next moment, and you're always saying, okay, we could see him going nuts, see him going nuts. Okay, crazier things are starting to happen. Um, then all of a sudden, just all, all hell breaks loose. So, yeah, Adam talked about, you know, always keeping you guessing. And, and it always kept the story moving. And you got to see the development of Jack Nicholson's character. And there's a lot that happens. And, and there's a lot of moments where you can see the, him becoming more and more crazy. Um, and there's a lot of different moments. But, you know... Corey, if you had to pick like one of your the most crazy Jack Nicholson moments where like you really felt it, like you really believed that like, man, this guy is losing it. What would it be? Yeah. So um, it, it's kind of weird because so the way that he can like can like the way that his face just looks, um, it reminds me of a lot of the times. Obviously, this is a movie that he was in, but a lot of the times he just looked like the Joker to me without like the makeup and kind of freaked me out a little bit. But like the one that when he comes out after she reads his, his story, that it's just the same sentence over and over again. And he's just behind her and he just comes in. His face just is like so crazy. Oh man. And just the, that and the axiom, just everything, just his, his, the way that he can just like his presence. It's just so unsettling. Um, and to speak to your point about the, like the one jump scare, um, I haven't really seen this movie a whole lot. This is probably like the third, like second or third time I've actually seen it, like all the way through. And I knew that scene was coming. And I'm not gonna lie, I paused the movie and I debated on fast forwarding through because I knew it was gonna because <laughs> <laughs> I forgot if he comes from the left or the right. And I was expecting him to come from the left, like behind, like the like where like the desk is because it seems like a better place to hide because it's more cover. And then he comes out and I'm now I realize that he's right-handed. So I think it'd be better, but yeah, it got me, it got me bad. And, no, it, uh, I was... 
it gets me every single time. I know exactly where the I know exactly where the column is. I know the exact tile that Halloran steps on when he actually comes behind the column. And I still I, I almost have to close my eyes. I don't close my eyes, but I almost have to because I know it's just gonna it's gonna get me and I'm gonna just jump out of my uh, skin for a minute. It's just the yeah. way that I think he frames the shots and like how just how the pacing of it is when he's walking. It just makes it so easy. You just don't know when it's gonna happen. Yeah, and, and um, one of one of the the shots that was framed, and this goes hand in hand with like his craziness, is whenever he's locked in the storeroom. Yeah. And there's an upward there's an upward camera angle, and it's just showing him and the in the doorknob to to push out. And I'm getting chills thinking about it because it is so intense. And this is the true psychoness or the the craziness. And and this is where I really think that you know, his character and the development, like this is where you can kind of see to, to Adam's point, um, how he's, he's fighting this internal battle. There's, there's, you know, there's a different side to him. And it's whenever he realizes that she's scared out of her mind, she's not going to let him go. And you can see him go for anger and you can see him pause where there's just like, there's nothing, it's lifeless. And then he puts on the, Oh, come on. I, I'm so scared. I'm so sorry. And he starts going through that. She then starts to like, you know, you could tell her character wants to be the, the, the wife that helps and wants to be able to try to help him or, or forgive him. And then she doesn't do it fast enough. And then he immediately flips on the switch and goes even more crazy um, and just starts hitting the wall. Uh, hitting the door and in the way that that is shot the the everything from the way it's written the way it's shot um the angles the suspense i mean that right there by far probably the the perfect explanation on that character and just how delusional and crazy his character becomes and then since you mentioned the framing i want to kind of go on that um when Steven Spielberg first saw The Shining, he didn't like it. And so he knew St Stanley Kubrick uh, pretty well. They were um, they had a pretty good correspondence going on. And when Stanley asked him, I was like, so what do you think of The Shining? Or what do you think of the movie? He just kind of like danced around it. And he's like, well, I like this part and this one. Well, he's like, well, you didn't really like it, did you? He's like, well, to be honest with you, no. He's like, well, what didn't you like about The Shining? And he said he didn't like Jack Nicholson's performance. He thought he went too over the top with it. And Stanley Kubrick said, well, I bet I can guarantee you just without thinking who's your top five favorite actors. And he just ran it off some names. He goes, you know, you didn't mention James Cagney. He said, I think James Cagney is probably the best actor to ever live. And James Cagney was this, had these wild facial expressions from the 1930s and 40s. And he goes over the top. And that was intentional from Kubrick. You know, he kept trying to push Jack to get a more um, crazier and more interesting performance. Uh, and then, I think it holds up. I definitely think it holds up, but I can see on first time viewing. Yeah. Spielberg has a point. Like he's just kind of going nuts and it's almost like a, um, it's almost like a stage version of somebody going crazy. But you know, when you have the camera on you, you know, every little detail of your eyebrows and your facial expression and your, and your smile, if you, you know, it has to be very subtle because the camera will pick it up. If it's exaggerated, it's going to look phony. 
yeah there's just so many like iconic scenes and how they film things just i mean i'm pretty sure everyone's seen and everyone brings up my favorite scene in the movie which is going to be the act scene and just the way that he handles it just from the beginning of it all the way through it when he comes up and he knocks on the door and how crazy he looks like he's like mm -hmm. he just looks like it it's like almost like an animal it just yeah just knocks on it little pigs and then and then it's just oh my gosh uh, yeah, and, and, in, and in other movies or other performances it wouldn't work it no. just wouldn't work but it's something about the way it's crafted it totally works for this movie and Somehow every time just, every time you watch it yeah and every time you watch it it just gets better and it's a better performance yeah. and and you so know what I, and you know what i think about is the reason why people get scared in these movies or they get the chills or they get this feeling of unease is because they're in the their psychological whenever they're going through it their conscious is putting themselves in that position the great thing about the scene and and the setting is that they're in this giant hotel in the middle of nowhere in the middle of winter they know that no one else should be in the hotel they also know there's no one there to help and you are now in a situation no matter what the room is a bathroom you know uh, a, a hotel room you have nowhere to go so, and, and to Corey's point, you, you see that and you see him just go crazy. And I know that a lot of people have probably seen that video of Jack Nicholson preparing for that scene. And he's got the ax and he's, he's hyping himself up. He's jumping up and down. He's running. He's going back and forth in the room. He's yelling. He's like legitimately like channeling his inner psychopath before that scene. And those are real emotions. And if you put yourself in that situation, I, I think that's why it, it, it stays true and it, and it stays in the minds of people. And like Corey said, like he, he, he loves that scene. It's an iconic scene, but we could all say that, Hey, if we were being hunted or if we were being um, chased and we had nowhere else to go and we were locked behind a door, you know, like, I mean, you could put yourself in that situation. Yeah, you're locked. You're locked behind a door. The only way out is a window that's too small, and it's covered um, with a giant snowdrift that you can't fit out of. And the only way forward is your husband with an axe who's getting ready to murder you. Oh yeah, it's it's just claustrophobic and it, it's terrifying. Although I wouldn't say that's that scene is iconic and that's most people's favorite scenes. That's not my favorite scene though. I had a lot of yeah scenes that I really enjoyed. Uh, one scene I just like, I don't know why, I just liked it was, it's just going to sound like it just like a, a dumb scene. I just like the way that it was shot was when Danny was first riding on a strike and he was going through the lobby and it was just following him. And you could hear the, the different like sound of him going on the carpet, off the carpet and him just going through the hotel the first time. I just thought it was oh, just such a gorgeous shot in the frame and just was everything about it. And just the way that they just handled everything, the sound and everything about it was just yeah, just, let's let's talk about just the um, framing of every shot, and that's why I love Stanley Kubrick movies because his background is in photography, and he's so meticulous about making sure that every scene is shot exactly the way he wants it. 
that's why his movies took forever to shoot. I think The Shining took almost a year to make from, from start to finish in principal photography. It was almost a year. It was a long time. Wow. Um, and yeah, every, every shot in that entire movie is a perfectly composed photograph. And so you pause the movie at any moment and there's not like a, there's not like, like a, um, he's not framed in an awkward or weird way. Like you pause the, the photo and you can print it off and put it up on your wall somewhere as a, like a, a still from a movie. It's just, I just love how much detail he puts into that because a lot of directors, they just don't, they just don't think that's like, oh, I'll just shoot the scene. And, um, you know, maybe the easiest angle is what we'll go with. No, in that documentary you're talking about, Matt, that when Jack Nicholson getting ready, um, there's another scene where they're they're going through, okay, how are we going to shoot Jack in the pantry? Like, how are we going to do that? And he's like kind of working out the angles. He's like, well, let's try this. And so he gets, he sees Stanley Kubrick get down with his uh, viewfinder and says, well, that's not bad. And that's what they went with. But, uh, you know, it was just kind of like a spur of the moment. He was just trying to figure out what do I like best? And he saw that and he's like, yeah, that's good. That's good. And he's put the camera there and that becomes iconic at that point. Yeah, that's the only clip I've seen of that documentary though, but I feel like I need to watch the rest of it because oh, it's great. every bit of this movie. Uh, he just takes a lot of time, just like the, the, the opening shot of the movie where it's just mountains and it just takes the time. I feel like there's a lot of shots like that. There was not really a whole lot going on, but it's just the way that it's shot and the way that it's framed and the music and everything. It's just, it just brings a certain like, it just grabs you and pulls you in, even though there's not really a whole lot going on. I don't know. Cause I was, I was legitimately remembered it. Like when I watched it, which was probably last time I watched it was 10 years ago. I remember it being kind of boring. Um, I feel like maybe I've just, <laughs> my tastes have just evolved a bit. Cause I, I just, I thought the whole movie was great. Well, there's a couple of things that I think that kind of hypnotize you with this movie. Cause that's how I feel when I watch it. I feel like I'm hypnotized and I, I just can't look away until the final name on the credits roll. Yeah, one part of that is the sound design. You kind of mentioned um, when Danny's going across the floor and he goes from the wood to the carpet to the wood to the carpet. It just works so well. Yeah. And then the music, the music, he takes a lot from like, um, there's a little bit of like classical elements that are mixed on a synthesizer. And there's uh, Gregory Ligeti, who was this kind of an avant-garde um, film composer he used a lot of his music uh, and it, everything just works brilliantly it's almost like that music was made specifically for the shiny even though it really wasn't the opening theme music is the dsi ray which is a classical piece of music that is a funeral march so the boom 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 that uh, is used in a lot of other types of film music so anything that's like dangerous or or dreadful you will hear that pattern of music but to use it on a synthesizer and then with that wailing screech right in the middle of it you know you're getting into something very terrifying you know you, you get you guys both talked about you know the feeling and the scenes and the way it was shot and Kubrick had to have it just right he had to have the right angle he had to have the right shot he didn't want to just settle for mediocre um and you know I did some additional like research and just reading through it and uh, they actually have the Guinness Book of World Records for the most retakes of a single scene with 127 retakes. Wow. Which and scene was it? 
I believe it was the one where Wendy is holding the bat. Um, and they just he, he wasn't right so they just kept on doing it and doing it and doing it um the other thing that i found interesting which if you think about it we know what a steady cam is you know and now it's just a you know it's like an everyday thing right every movie right there's steady cams there's rigs that are um, balanced with weights and things like that but um the steady cam was used and this was only the seventh time ever seventh film it had ever been used um and you can really get the feel of that on some of the iconic shots um you know that the scene at the end whenever jack nicholson is going through the fake snow the styrofoam and the salt you know because it wasn't snow but he's going through that and it's got a lower angle and it's following him and that stagger step, right? You're, you're, you're with him on that. It's not over his head. It's not just over his shoulder, but you're, you're really right there and it's a smooth and you're going around these turns and you're seeing his point of view that whenever you turn this turn, like the first time you see it is whenever he sees it. Um, so just, it's just outstanding everything about the way it was shot and the him being able to capture a moment and to Adam's point, it, it's so minimal, but it makes the biggest difference. And if you wouldn't have known that they shot that scene 127 times, I guarantee that now whenever you go back and watch that scene, you will look at it for any imperfections. You will look at it for the perfection and you appreciate it more because of that. You know, like whenever Adam mentioned, you know, and, and told us about the angle right in the, in the pantry. I mean, if you really take a hard look at that, you realize how much thought went into that. It wasn't just somebody going, eh, I think we could shoot it from this angle. Yeah, let's see what it looks like. And then they shoot it and they go, yeah, okay, we can work with it. So just it's just outstanding. I mean, it, it truly is an art. It's an yeah. art form. Yeah. So the Steadicam, yeah, you're right. It was used in other movies, but for like a few scenes, it was like almost like a novelty. It was like, oh, we'll try it out. But Kubrick really said, no, I'm going to use this wide scale on this one. And without that device, it would have been a much different movie. You couldn't do the chase of the maze without it. You couldn't do the following Danny on the tricycle without it. Um, and then the famous scene with the bat going up the stairs or, you know, yeah. that tracking scene following them. Um, yeah. That would have been much harder to get. Yeah. So I did have a question for you, Adam, because I know that you typically don't like child actors. What was your opinion on Danny this time? Danny, Danny for me was, is, is, He's okay. He's okay. He did. He does as well as he possibly could. Um, I think that it was it was smart not to give him too much to do. Because again, child actors are very limited in their range. And if they try to do too much, you can see them acting. However, Danny seems real. He seems like he's a little bit terrified of his dad. Um, even really at the beginning, obviously he went through a traumatic experience with him. Um, there's, you, you can, you can see that 
it was effortless for him to give a genuine performance. And I appreciate that. And then once you get into the meat of the horror of him being chased and the look of terror on his face, um, it, it, he, it works for me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's things I can nitpick, but there's no point because again, I think he was like maybe six or seven years old or maybe younger than that. Yeah. I thought he did a great job personally. Yeah. I was yeah. just curious about what you were, what you thought about it. Cause I know we're going to have a different opinion on this one, but uh, Shelley Duvall is Wendy. <clears throat> Towards the later half of the movie, I felt like as she was getting yeah. more ter- more terrified and getting into that aspect of it, I, I thought she did a great job. But at the beginning, like the first half of the movie, I just, I didn't think she, I just, I don't know. It just wasn't good to me, especially like that conversation that she has with the, uh, with the doctor that comes and sees Danny after he has his bathroom incident. Um, that whole conversation just it just is off to me or acting. And I guess that might be the way that, that they wanted it to be. But to me, it just, I don't know. I just didn't like her performance until like the later half. And then I really liked it, especially like the, the act scene. And then the, the, you know, the bat scene before that. Um, but that's just what I was thinking about her performance. Yeah, man. Shelly Duvall gets so much crap. And I feel so bad because if you, if you do watch the documentary, which was shot by Stanley Kubrick's daughter, by the way. You can see that he is just tormenting her and just trying to get the most horrific performance out of her that he's literally accosting her on the set. He's yelling at her. He's cussing at her just to get, again, that genuine um, look of terror and that stressed out performance. A lot of people think he may have gone a little bit too far because, I mean, this was almost a year in the making of him just like saying, no, you got to do it better, do it better, do it better. And then just not giving her any sympathy at all. That I, I've come around to say her performance is maybe not brilliant, but it's getting close to it in my opinion, because after knowing what she had to go through to be able to do that on a routine basis, I appreciate it a lot more. Yeah. And yeah, at the beginning, at the beginning, uh, I think it's deliberate that he chose her and he told her and he, he used the cuts of her being as weak and as ineffective as possible so that we know when we get to the hotel and they're snowed in and there's no way, nowhere to go that she's not going to be able to defend herself. And that is a terrifying thought to have if there's no way you could overpower this brutal alcoholic husband with a fireman's axe. There's no way you can protect you or your son. And that's a terrifying thought. Yeah, I didn't think about that. I think the other problem for me is just, it's because of like who she's with. Jack Nicholson just crushes it in every scene that he's in. And I feel like just having those two sometimes in a scene together or like having her have a scene and then having him have a scene like right after it, it just, I just think he just overpowers her at some point, like just his his acting. He over be what it is for me. I'm trying well, to yeah, like, yeah, and, and that kind of um, parallels the the story. Kind of parallels the story. I mean, Jack has overpowered her, his entire, their entire marriage, and why would somebody like her continue to stay with him after his alcohol abuse, and the fact that he broke his own son's arm, his own toddler son's arm after coming home drunk? Who would stay with somebody like that if they weren't, if if there wasn't something psychologically wrong with them to begin with? And so I think she portrays that very well because, again, not a, a normal person would not put up with that level of abuse. 
I feel like I really need to watch the documentary and I feel like then I'll really, I'll appreciate her acting more. And there's some, there's some pretty funny scenes. Go ahead, Matt. But the documentary, uh, are you talking about the documentary room 237? Or are you talking about a different documentary? Cause the documentary 237 room 237 gets into a lot more of the in-depth and the conspiracy theories. Or are you talking about the legit documentary based on the shine? I think he's talking about the making, right? The making of the making documentary kind of thing. I'm guessing. Yeah. But I, I would like to also watch the thing that you're talking about just to explore the universe more. <laughs> just yeah, no, well, if you want to dive into that rabbit hole with uh, that documentary of room 237, yeah, it goes into some crazy conspiracies, um, additional facts, details, um, everything from Kubrick uh, helped fake the moon landing, which is garbage, by the way. So stupid. And, and the conspiracy <laughs> is that he gave signals and and uh, Danny wearing the Apollo sweater. And then, oh. That's and a good then point. just like subtle things like you know adam was talking about earlier like there's subtle things there's a reason why these things were in the shots you know they say that it had something to do with the holocaust and genocide of native americans and that's why whenever he's in the the food storage or the pantry um you can see um you know the heads of indians um and you can see other um you know, canned food and things like that, that relate to these, these moments in time. Now that's the only, that's the only conspiracy theory about the movie that I actually think there's something behind it is the native American angle because Grady says, not Grady, um, Stuart Allman, right? Yeah. Stuart Allman. He says at the beginning, it, you know, it was supposedly built on an Indian burial ground, right? And yeah. so there's a little bit of truth behind the, that in the story. And then when you see like some of the Native American motifs in the Colorado lounge, when you hear him say white man's burden, Lloyd, white man's burden, um, you can kind of see that maybe this is a, a, a parallel to the sins of the white man's treatment of Native Americans. Yeah, because I said, I think they, in the movie was like built in like, like 1902 or 1909 or something like that. And they actually had to like, like fight off, I think they were yeah. talking about how fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was yeah. going to make sure I was like making things up in my mind. They had to fight off like Native Americans in the area. Um, yeah, he definitely he definitely says that. Yeah, the only thing I would I just would want to look more into like how why is like in particular like why. So at the end, obviously, he shows up in the picture. And it's 1921. Why? Why that? Like why that time? I just want to know. Like, I guess like I just. <laughs> questions i'm probably never gonna know the answer to but like why that year like did something happen that year why did he get transported to that time um grady seems to be trapped in the same time as well the prior caretaker uh yeah that's like the main thing i would have a question about so grady yeah i mean grady comes back to that time period but he's not from that time period because i said because yeah. he said his predecessor at that job hired somebody to run the overlook and he killed his family with an ax. So he wasn't from the 1920s. Uh, and the twins you, are his girls. Yes, yes. Yes. I just, I just think that time period is, is interesting to photograph, interesting to see on camera. I mean, it's, it's different enough and interesting enough that if we see him walk through 
the um, the color or the uh, lounge, the gold room, and we see everybody in 1920s attire with the long cigarette filters and the flapper dresses and stuff. We would know, okay, something's not right here. Something this there's some ghosts, you know, or there there's a haunting going on. You know, one of the things that you mentioned um, before, Adam, was the you know, and we kind of just talked about it. You're seeing these pictures on the wall. You're seeing these different things as the characters are walking through or Danny's riding down the hallway and he's seeing the girls and stuff like that. Um, but you brought up an interesting um, point or something that you noticed this, these really this last time that you um, watched the film that um, was pretty interesting. Yeah, so so the more I get um, invested into this movie and I watch it, more things I start to pick up. And I would say the last four or five times I've watched this one, I'm really struck by the symbolism of mirrors, specifically when it has to do with Jack's personality. I've never really done any research. This is kind of my own theory. I'm sure there's research out there about mirrors and um, The Shining. Now, every time Jack has some type of psychotic episode or they allude to him losing his mind, there's a mirror present. He's looking into the mirror when he's talking to Danny on the bed, saying he wants to stay there forever and ever and ever. There's mirrors uh, when he's talking to Lloyd, the bartender. There's mirrors in the bathroom when he's talking to Grady. And then my favorite scene is after he's accused by Wendy of hurting Danny in room 237 which has a mirror, by the way, room 237 in the bathroom. I was going to say that. There's you a mirror. didn't bring that one up. Yeah, that's I, when you noticed I, it just, mirror. I just thought about it. My favorite scene is where he turns the corner into the hallway, going to the gold room, and we're tracking him, and we're backing up. Every time he gets to a mirror on the wall, he does some kind of angry gesture. There are three times, three mirrors. Every time he gets to the mirror, he has an angry episode or a gesture. And then he walks a little farther. And then when he gets to the second mirror, another one. That is absolutely intentional. There's no way he just said, okay, I want you to do like three angry gestures. And it just so happened to line up with mirrors. Yeah. I No, that, that was absolutely intentional. I think it has to do with mirrors represent his split personality. That actually is a really good point. I noticed the mirrors, but like I wasn't looking at him. I was looking like at the actual mirrors because I kept expecting to see like a ghost in the reflection or something like that, just because that's like typically like a horror movie trope. Um, but that makes a lot of sense, actually. It's a super good theory. Yeah. And I, and I, until you said that, I, I never really thought about it. But if you think about mirrors and in today's like culture and cultures around the world, there's cultures and there's people that don't believe that mirrors should be in a home that you shouldn't look at yourself, whether it's vanity or whether it's, you know, being photographed, whether it's being having mirrors and not looking because it looks into a, another realm, another dimension, mm -hmm. another plane. Um, so it's, you know, me thinking about that and you saying that it, it just, it kind of brings it full circle. Um, and brings to light um i'm in and one of the things that i was thinking about is like the the horror movie us um which is like a psychological th 
thriller, right? And and there's two planes. There's who's real and who's not, right? Who's the copy and who's the crazies and who's the real, right? Who's the real people? And and that's it's symbolizing, you know, his fight, but also at the same time, I mean, there's a lot of spirits, there's a lot of, you know, different things that are going on, you know, and, and you know, whether you believe it or not, you know, to your point, it can't be coincidence. There's no way that they lined up all the mirrors and they were standing there going, okay, you're going to take three steps. You're going to have an episode. Then you're going to take four steps. You're going to have an episode. Right. No, it wouldn't, it wouldn't. I mean, it's just too coincidental. Yeah. And even, even him staring out, looking at Wendy and Danny playing, and he has that menacing look, the famous Kubrick stare with the uh, green turtleneck. He's looking out the window, and we don't see it, but he can see his reflection in the, in the uh, window. He can see his reflection. So I think that's a, another episode of a mirror where his split personality is coming out. Okay, something else that's fairly interesting um, that kind of – goes along with the details of like how mirrors are important. Uh, this movie is very important when it comes to mazes. Mazes is, a maze is a very important part of the story, right? The maze is not a part of the book. That's a Kubrick adaptation. He put the, he put the hedge maze in the book and that's the big climax. Well, there are allusions to maze throughout the hotel. You got the carpet. The carpet is very maze-like, especially you know, the famous carpet where he's playing with the uh, trucks and the tennis ball comes rolling in. And then this one, you don't notice it the first couple of times you see it, but the entire overlook is itself a maze. The way he goes between, he goes on right angles uh, when he's on his trike. And there are paradoxes in the overlook. There are rooms that have windows that should never have an exterior wall. And the way the hotel is built makes you purposefully confused. Like you don't know where you are after you make a turn. Like sometimes you're in the Colorado lounge, you make a turn, you may be in the kitchen or you may be down a guest corridor. And it's very disorienting. And it's done that way, I think on purpose because they want to make you confused. That maze is a labyrinth. It, it's, and that kind of goes back to you know, you don't know what's going to be around the next corner. You don't know how Jack is going to act in the next scene. And that's purposely psychologically confusing you. So you are disoriented and the haunts and the, the terror is much more realistic. Wow. That's a super good point. Cause even she, like, even at the beginning, they talk about how large it is and how easy it is to get lost in there and how like Shelly Duvall's character, Wendy, she talks about it. She comments yeah. on it. It makes a lot of sense though. Yeah. And you know, what's funny about that is you talked about it always keeps you guessing and you don't know what's around the next corner. I don't know about you guys, but ever since the first time I saw The Shining, any time that I'm in a hotel or any kind of venue where there's a long hallway and I can see that it, it veers off or it, it turns, it creeps me out. Yeah, I'm oh, expecting yeah. to see those twin girls. Even though they're not girls, they are in real life. I mean, it, it creeps me out because the anticipation, knowing that I'm going to walk all the way down this long hallway and not knowing what's around the corner and somebody could just mm -hmm. be waiting there. Or like we talked about earlier, 
Jack Nicholson with the axe behind the column. We know it's going to happen. We know it's coming, but still, it's just as just as creepy. Yeah. Oh yeah, I, I get the same way, um, and I love how the hallway, you know, is so parallel to each other. It's almost like it's a mirror image. What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's just so parallel, and then the girls are perfectly lined up, and they're twins. Another mirror image. Oh, I go on about mirrors and mirror, uh, throughout this movie, but. Uh, I think we'd be talking for about an hour. I would agree. I would. I do want to mention though, before we get to our ratings, the addition of the axe. So so important. Do you know what the murder weapon in the book was? A croquet mallet. The murder where? The murder the weapon. Book. The murder weapon in the book was a croquet mallet. Really. Yeah, so he's terrorizing his family with a croquet mallet. It's called ro- it's called roquet in the in the book, which I guess is a bigger version of a croquet mallet, but it's not as scary as an axe. No. I wonder if anybody's tried to parody the scene with the axe in the door. Because I don't know how true this is, but I was talking to Matt about this before we started filming about the, the door scene in particular about the axe. I read something, don't know if it's true though, that originally they were using like fake stump doors essentially but jeff nicholson used to be like either a voluntary firefighter or something like that and he was it it didn't look good when he was hitting the door because it broke too easy oh that's true that's true so they used real doors instead so that's him legitimately just going ham on a door yeah he could destroy a door a, a fake stage door yeah he could yeah. do that in no time and so there's like oh we got to beef him up a little bit i guess and you can just tell the effort that he's putting yeah. into it just makes the scene so intense. Yeah. Uh, it's just unrealist. It's just so crazy. But uh, we'll go ahead and get into ratings. No surprise here, guys. I'll go ahead and start it out. Um, this is the best movie we've watched so far. Slightly better than Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. <laughs> this is an absolute masterpiece. And it is now... I'll have to do my ratings for like my favorite movies all the time. But I, I'm going to watch this movie now more often. I don't know why I did it before. I hopefully this <laughs> this, this cultured whole swine is gonna uh, culture me up a little bit. Um, I'm not completely uncultured. My, um, I mean, I guess maybe my favorite movie is Empire, but which is just like a typical response, I guess. But this movie is an absolute masterpiece. Ten out of ten. I don't think there's there's just nothing. There's no flaws to me. It's just a perfect movie. It's just great. So that's um, that's you know that's a that's a odd rating for you Corey. um seeing as the fact that you came to us with home alone 2 and claim that that was the greatest cinematic experience that you've ever seen and what made it was operation ho 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 but i digress i too i first love i said this that was the christmas movie wise okay all right well you can try to erase it one different category okay yeah, you could try to erase it however you want, but we know what happened. Um, so, you know, Corey rated it a 10, and, and I do agree with him. It is a, a masterpiece for its time, and it still reigns true today. The, the, but the problem with me giving it a 10 is Shelley Duvall. I can't. I, I, I just can't. Oh, you're being too hard on her. I can't. Watch, watch the Vivian Kubrick 
behind the scenes and you can see her hair is falling out. She is being insulted and embarrassed in front of the entire crew. I, you, I have just, new, you have a new appreciation for her. I, I don't know that I can. I mean, just awful. Just everything about it. Um, but I am going to still rate it a 9.5. I, I just, I, there's just moments where, and, and maybe to, to her credit, let's just say hypothetically, they were, if we could go back in time and they put somebody else in that position, it could be just as bad. Mm-hmm. right because that individual will be under a lot of stress I, I don't know but there's just something about it i just can't get over it you have such a an outstanding performance of jack nicholson and and then you have her and and i just i can't get through it still doesn't change the fact that it's a it's an amazing movie amazingly shot written i, I just i just can't do a full 10 but nine a strong 9.5 that's respectable. It's respectable. I've I've been um, addicted to this movie really since the first time I watched it. I think the first time I saw it, I think you were, I think you were at my house, Matt. Probably. So we were in like sixth grade. It was on I think TNT. So with the commercials and all the bad stuff edited out. But even that was it was so terrifying, and I couldn't even go back my back hallway alone because I was like. Oh, I just felt, I just felt weird. I, you know, part of that psychological horror of mazes and not knowing what's around the next corner. But once I saw it again and again, I just got hooked. So every time I watch it, I feel like when Jack sits down at the bar and he takes the whiskey and he says, here's the five miserable months on the wagon and he kicks it back and he's like, oh yeah, (laughs) that's how I feel when I finally get into the movie again. I just, I just love it. I just love how I can find something new every single time. So, I mean, it's no, no surprise that this is a definitely a very high 10. That's a 10 plus 10 plus. It doesn't get much better. Although there is one thing I, I do not like about it. There's only one thing. Shelly Duvall cigarette. When she's talking to the doctor, all she needs to do is go like this, just flick the ashes off because the ashes are like six inches. Just, Flick it into the ashtray. Yeah. Just, I can't, I, when, when she's talking, I can't not notice it. I just look at him. It's like, take off your ashes. Just flick them into the ashtray. Yeah. It's getting ready to fall on your lap. I, I, oh, I'm really OCD about that. So, well, I feel like that's that that my point now. about that. She doesn't act like a real person in that scene. It's just, and I think anyone else would, would do that. I don't know. Just her acting in that scene in particular, but the way that, that you helped me, I was going to rate it a 10 anyways, but yeah. you helped me understand it a little more, her character and how, how she, you know, her acting. I, I still, I still can't get over it. And then, uh, you know, she went on to do the um, critically acclaimed Popeye and she was olive oil. So she really redeemed herself with that performance. <laughs> um, Do you guys remember Shelley Duvall's fairytale theater? No. That no. was like that was like a, a kids show in the eighties. I think I'm saying it right. Uh, it was like fairy tales that she. It was like live action fairy tales, and she hosted it. I remember watching it as a kid, and it was good. And she was also in uh, Mother Goose's Rock and Rhymes. Did you ever see that one? No. Nope. It was it was like a Disney Channel. I think it was a Disney Channel movie when Disney Channel first came out. Are you a Shelley Duvall fan? Like I, I, I've seen her in three things: The Shining. 
Shelley Duvall's Fairy Tale Theater and Mother Goose's Rockin' Rhymes. Three very different, but maybe not so much. Um, I've seen Popeye. At this point, I really think that Adam might have a secret obsession with Shelley Duvall, and there may or may not be a <laughs> Shelley Duvall tattoo somewhere on his body. Um, <laughs> He's president of the fan club for sure. That's it. Yeah, it's it's the tattoo of her with a cigarette, and she has the six-inch ash. <laughs> oh, my God. That she just won't flick, flick off. That'll be tattooed on my body forever. Well, I, I had a blast filming uh, this episode and, uh, you know, starting the new year off right with with The Shining, um, a, a horror and thriller, psychological thriller, classic. Um, and uh, I appreciate, you know, everybody uh, joining us and listening in. Um, as always, uh, make sure to subscribe to the channel. Click the little bell so you get the notifications on when we post next. We are on all social media platforms and we are on all of the major podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. So even if you can't watch us, you can listen to us on the go. Um, and until next time, um, we will uh, we'll depart and uh, we'll should be sharing some, some different 80s movies um, throughout the month of January. So come back, check it out. Thanks everybody for tuning in. Thank you to Adam and Corey. This is Matt, and we'll see you next time.